VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility, just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. Plans for an amber watch list have been ditched after a revolt in the cabinet and a backlash from the travel industry. The proposal would have warned travellers which countries were at risk of being placed on the infamous red list. The Prime Minister instead promised to keep travel rules as simple as possible. This is still a dangerous virus and we must try and stop variants coming in, must stop importing variants from abroad. So we have to have a balanced approach. And what I want to see is a, something that is as simple and as user-friendly as possible. Well, meanwhile, the NHS COVID-19 app has also been changed, so fewer people are told to isolate and will have to uh, isolate after so-called pandemic, which, of course, caused staffing issues across so much of the UK economy and so many industries. Ministers are due to carry out a review meeting of all this on Thursday uh, to decide specifically the travel rules for most of August and what's left, I guess, of the summer holiday. Yeah, big day uh, Thursday for anybody uh, trying to get away this uh, August. We're already into the month and we haven't really had the uh, review, the uh, rules laid out yet. Well, let's uh, chew this over with Bloomberg's UK government reporter, Emily Ashton. Emily, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Now, reports that the Cabinet was split uh, over adding another phase to the uh, already rather complex traffic light. <laughs> Tell us about what's been happening with that. Yeah, well, you know, we had this red, amber, green uh, travel situation. So people were just about getting their heads around that, although the rules around testing are still pretty complex. I think a lot of people who were travelling abroad for the first time during the pandemic are a bit confused about what test to take and what day and what um, what uh, colour their country is supposed to be in. But this added a whole new layer of complexity that the government were considering um, adding an amber watch list into the mix. We already had a green watch list, so we knew which whether green countries might move to amber. This would have told you whether um, amber countries would move to red. But this was quite significant because, say, if you're going to Spain and that was put on the amber watch list, might move to red. Well, that has huge impact on your finances if you're then forced to isolate in a hotel on return um, at a huge cost to you, especially if you're with a family. So that might that would have put some people off going altogether. The airline industry were very cross about it um, being mooted as an option at all. But that has now been ruled out, um, according to government sources. But we'll know for sure on Thursday. But we heard Boris Johnson say yesterday that he wants to make it simple 
user-friendly approach and adding another layer of complexity wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have been simple at all but the problem of all this emily is of course it's it's looked at and seen as you can see it from the front pages of today's papers it looks like a government doesn't quite know what it's doing it moves one direction it moves another direction it's driven by the industry uh, and possibly by a number of backbenchers or it's driven by health concerns it doesn't seem to be any clear direction well, no, and, you know, a lot of people would say that that has been um, the case in on many occasions during the pandemic in the, the last year and a half, that uh, it says it wants simple rules and then uh, rules get more complex. Um, and, uh, you know, you've seen that in, in, in various guises. And also you saw that uh, reaction from France about the Amber Plus. I mean, that's another layer of complexity of the system. So France is the only country in the EU at the moment where fully vaccinated travellers that come from there um, don't avoid isolation. They have to isolate for 10 days. French ministers are up in arms about that. Why has France got this different um, different level um, of rules to the other countries? Well, the UK says that's about the beta variant, this variant from South Africa. Say there's lots of cases in France, but actually cases have come way down now. So we are expecting on Thursday those rules to be relaxed. But that that came out of the blue, and I, I think what people need is a bit of reassurance uh, ahead of their holidays that things won't change all of a sudden, um, and that's what happened with that Amber Plus category. Clearly, these uh, decisions, these wide decisions around the pandemic are some of the most important being made in, in government at the moment. Do we know, uh, perhaps we don't, do we Do we know how the Cabinet is, is splitting on these things? I remember that uh, the, the former health secretary was tended to be, I guess you would say, hawkish on the restrictions, uh, and and Sunak seems to be painting himself uh, as more sort of dovish. But do, do do we know how the cabinet is sort of splitting on these things? I think I think it's fair to say that the person who is health secretary and now obviously it's Sajid Javid will be more nervous about any potential variants coming in, about cases going up, because that is their remit. That's what they're responsible for. Whereas Rishi Sunak. He's responsible for the economy and he wants to make sure those industries, the airline industry, travel industries can keep running. So there will always be that kind of split. I don't, you know, I think Rishi Sunak might get a bit of a, more of a helping hand from um, Sajid Javid than he did from Matt Hancock, just because Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak go back a long way. Sajid Javid, uh, former chancellor, of course, uh, and, you know, will have those leanings in a different way as well he so he has lots of competing interests but there will always be split voices in the cabinet over this um and tensions over where to go but frankly they don't know what the right decision is there is no easy decision on these things everybody's a bit confused about why case numbers have dropped recently um and you know then they went up again things change very fast um there are no perfect black and white decisions to be made and I suppose the other half of this is interesting too, which is the the pingdemic, the idea that this NHS app has has caused a, a big problem in the economy by people not coming to work, and that somehow by tweaking it, uh, it could make that better. And of course, the people on the the health side saying, "Hang on a second, it's there for a reason." The whole point is you're trying to bring the infections down by making people isolate. Now, the government at one point was saying, "No, no, there's no good uh, tweaking this," but now they have done so. So again, it seems to be a move. Uh, in terms of perhaps public opinion, perhaps their own backbenchers, perhaps industry. But what what is, do we know about the decision-making process behind this? 
Yeah, the, the app is an interesting one. It has There's lots of elements there. So millions of people have downloaded this app on their phone, which um, you go into a venue or you're in a crowded place, and the idea is it uses Bluetooth, Bluetooth technology to figure out who's around you. And if one of those people then subsequently test positive, they can input it on the app, and it pings all those people that they've been close to for the past five days. That's how it used to be. That's now changed to two days so those number of alerts, that number of alerts is going to come down significantly, the government say. But they say that's fine because that's when that person would have been most infectious. They're not changing the sensitivity of the app. But clearly some scientists will be concerned that that's been watered down a bit. But I suppose the crucial point is, you know, if you're going to put people off, um, if people know that all their friends and their colleagues are being pinged and everything and they want to go on holiday, for example... They might be deleting it or turning off the contact tracing. And actually, that's what the government really wants to prevent. They, they want to keep that trust in the test and trace system going. So they're trying to forge this middle way. But to be honest, we've got two more weeks until everyone who's fully vaccinated avoids that self-isolation for 10 days anyway. So really, all this, you know, it's quite a short-term thing because if you get pinged after the middle of August... You don't have to stay at home anyway. You're just encouraged to take a test. So things are changing quite fast. But as you say, the, you know, the app is doing what it's supposed to do. Um, as cases rise, the pings will rise. But that impact on the industries maybe wasn't properly thought out. And what about um, kebabs for jabs? Uh, it's a rather it's a rather delicious phrase, isn't it? Um, th- I think it's come from a newspaper. But this idea that the government is going to have to bribe younger people to, to get vaccines. I think there's concern in the government that the, that the rates have really dropped off as we move through to the uh, the final youngest kind of uh, cohort. Uh, is this programme sort of dead in the water or is the government still looking at ways of, of, of getting people to those vaccination centres? I think those things are definitely being explored more as we go forward. And you see, you can see on the COVID dashboard that that uh, figure for the first dose, we've got 88.6% of UK adults have a first dose. But that's been going up so slowly now. And, you know, clearly there is a, a, a cohort of people in society that really just don't want a vaccine at all. A lot of people will be young. They feel invincible. They don't really want it. Um, so anything that can be done to persuade them will be, be, you know, will be considered. And I thought it was interesting when Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, kind of entered people who had their first dose in the run-up to the Euros final into a con- competition to get a seat um, at Wembley. Um, and that encouraged a fair few people. But before that, just a few weeks before that, he was like, no, we're not really looking into it. So I think things are changing on that front. And in America, they have been various states have been using um, that, haven't they? Pizza for a Pfizer and all all this, um, yes, even shots for shots so handing out guns exactly, at one point yeah. very very briefly then finally if, if you would Emily what is all this doing for the uh, uh, the standing of Boris Johnson and the party because a lot of people love headlines over the weekend suggesting that perhaps they were beginning to lose their lead over Labour is that true? Well yeah I think that's really interesting actually because even a few weeks ago things were the other way around and uh, people thought you know, people in Westminster I was speaking to thought, oh, Labour, you know, not doing very well at all. Um, Boris Johnson's untouchable. It's it's amazing how quickly things can change. Um, and I think it does come down to just um, not being able to make decisions. You know, people not certain where you're going, what your direction is. 
Um, I think cases going down, and they are going down um, on a seven-day trend. They go up every now and then, but it's a seven-day trend. They are going down. As they progress down, I think, you know, that could only be a good thing for Boris Johnson. And he now wants to concentrate on things other than COVID. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. But now let's talk about some other stories that are occurring in the world of politics. And we start with the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, who's urging young people to get back to the office. According to the Times, he says working from home could scupper their careers. The government dropped the instruction for people to work from home in England on the 19th of July. In an interview with LinkedIn News, the Chancellor also said the government's left the decision about returning to offices up to businesses. Well, Nicola Sturgeon has urged the Prime Minister to meet her in Edinburgh to discuss the country's recovery from coronavirus. The First Minister is due to make an announcement on lifting COVID restrictions in Scotland later today. Now, while all restrictions have been lifted in England, the Scottish First Minister is still to confirm if the cap, if this can happen north of the border uh, from August the 9th. Meanwhile, London's airports have seen the return of close to two-thirds of the customers that they would have served in a typical week before the pandemic, at least if sales of pre-boarding croissant are any kind of indication. According to Bloomberg's Pret Index, sales at the eponymous takeaways rose by a fifth last week in the cluster that includes Heathrow, Gatwick and Luton airports. Now that is the fastest on record for Pret since the outbreak of COVID-19 as Britons jet off on summer holidays. Okay, as the uh, UK plots its recovery out of the pandemic, it will have to add up the toll it's taken on local communities. Councils have been under unprecedented pressure, tasked with managing essential services and social care provision. A BBC investigation last month found that local authorities across the country face a £3 billion black hole in their budgets, with some risk of bankruptcy. So when things start to go wrong, how do we redress the gaps in local government provision? Uh, joining us now is Michael King, the local government and social care ombudsman. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, tell us about uh, your service and how the ombudsman works. Well, basically, we're entirely independent of both central government and local government. And we have got the powers of the High Court to investigate disputes between members of the public and their local authorities or any of England's 26,000 private sector social care providers. Um, People have to have complained to the council or to the care provider before they can come to us. So basically, we're looking at intractable disputes. And because we're independent, we look at those in the same way that a court or a tribunal would. We come to a decision, and that's the final word on the matter. So we can bring some closure to long-running disputes. Where we find fault, we can make recommendations that include giving a personal remedy to the person if they've been caused an injustice. But also, the most important thing for me as ombudsman, 
is we also try and drive some learning from those complaints to make sure that things get better for everybody not just fix it for the one individual who's come to us. Yeah, but Michael, you say recommendations uh, and, and getting some learning out of it. I mean, it doesn't sound that tough. Do you actually have any powers to make local government change? Well, it's interesting that during the investigation, as I say, we have powers of the High Court. So we've got very draconian powers during the investigation to compel witnesses and to, and to gather evidence. The reason, though, that when we have made our judgment, and our local authorities have to accept our judgment, they, unless they judicially review us, so that's very powerful. The recommendations, though, that come after that, the reason that they're not binding on local authorities is because clearly um, they're a democratic institution. So fundamentally, the final word sits with their local councillors to decide whether or not they'll implement our recommendations. As you say on the face of it, that sounds like a weakness in the system, but actually it's a huge strength. Um, 99.5% of our uh, recommendations are implemented. And actually where we sometimes find that council officers are reluctant to implement our recommendations what will often happen, and this happened recently in Cornwall County, uh, County Council, councillors will rebel against the officers and force them to implement our recommendations. So we kind of work with the grain of local democracy rather than um, having effectively having bureaucrats who can trump local democracy. So it's a system that's worked from, from way back in the 1960s, and it works very well despite what, you know, as you say, on the face of it, what feels like a weakness in it. How how far into the process do you get involved? Presumably, there needs to be a, a certain amount of kind of road that's been covered first. If I if I unhappy with my parking ticket with my local council, I can't just uh, you know on day two come to you and say I'd like you to get involved with this. No, absolutely. People have got to have gone to the local authority and gone through the local authorities' complaint system first. We're here as the kind of final stage of anybody's complaint. Let's say very much like a court or a tribunal. You, you mentioned the example of the parking ticket there. We, we will sometimes look at some fairly low-level complaints about bins or parking where we think there's a wider public interest that flows from them. But our primary focus is on complaints where somebody suffered a fairly substantial injustice or where there's actually bigger lessons to be learned. And, and last year, we, we um, made 1,500 recommendations to change public services for the better. So in many ways, we offer the the greatest free consultancy service that councils could wish for, and that out the learning from some of the complaints drives really serious service improvements um, right across England. Well, Michael, I guess in all of what we've been saying so far, we're talking about the, the theory and, and what is supposed to happen and how it works. What about what's happening, what has been, I guess, the biggest challenge local governments faced for maybe half a century, which is dealing with the COVID crisis? Uh, do you feel that more, do you see more councils under strain, bigger gaps appearing, things that you're then drawn into to try and sort out as a result of COVID? Well, in many ways, and, I, and I'm sure you've heard people say this under the context, in many ways, COVID has actually magnified existing problems rather than created brand new ones. I mean, what we've seen really over the last decade is local authorities coming under increasing financial strain. And that's changed the nature of our work. Um, 20 years ago, I think we would have been looking at complaints which were individual one-off one mistakes. These days, when we investigate, we tend to find systemic errors, often which are driven by financial pressures in the local authority. And what COVID's done is actually magnify what we were already seeing. Um, so in many ways, COVID hasn't particularly highlighted brand new issues, just um, ones we were already concerned about. Um, I think one of the other things I would say, though, about COVID is that 
Where we, we've done a huge amount of investigations already into that, and later on this year we'll probably be producing a report to talk about some of the lessons learned from it. But actually, one of the underlying issues, and, and this probably sounds a bit dull, is actually where we found fault over and over again isn't some of the spectacular things you've heard in, in the front pages of the newspapers. It's more about getting the basics right. Where we see problems in local authorities all too often, it's about poor administrative capacity and competence. Actually, just get the boring stuff right and almost everything else follows. So that, as I say, sounds like a bit of a tame message, but actually right across public services from the parking example you gave right the way through to very serious issues about social care, actually getting the basic administrative processes right, following your policies and keeping proper records, they're the things which often are the things which are going wrong and they can cause serious, serious problems down the track. Give give us some examples of, of some basic stuff which many councils are not getting right. Well, one of the issues which has come to the fore during COVID, um, obviously we're all aware there's been all sorts of government support schemes to try and help small businesses and, and, and keep the high street going. One of the things we've seen is significant numbers of complaints and significant numbers of problems about the way those schemes have been administered. Now, we've taken into account the fact that councils obviously had to implement these at pace. Um, they did so in the middle of a crisis, so, and many councils did very, very well in doing that. So uh, this isn't an entirely negative picture. But the councils who got that wrong, often they got it wrong because they were too simplistic in the way they implemented them. They, had, um, they didn't exercise their discretion about complex cases, or they didn't even communicate the nature of the scheme properly on their website. So some businesses come, come to us, they've lost out substantial sums of money in terms of support that they should have got. And often the reason for that lies in some basic fundamental administrative errors from the local authority. Michael, let me ask about the other half of your title. You mentioned social care briefly there. You are also social care ombudsman. Uh, or your right. In that sense, I mean, social care is such a vexed issue, which has been brought to the fore, of course, during the pandemic. I mean, do you feel that that is getting the attention it deserves? Are you able to right the wrongs that unquestionably are in the system? Um, well, we certainly can't right all of them. Um, adult care, adult social care is a real concern. I mean, the, the model on which we run it in this country... I think there's a common consensus that that is probably unsustainable in the long term. Um, a lot of the businesses who operate in that sector operate on very, very narrow margins. Um, and the funding model of adult social care is creaking at the seams. That reflects itself in the, in the investigations we do. Where we do a detailed investigation into a social care case, we uphold, um, we find fault, so we uphold the complaint in 72% of those cases. So nearly three quarters of the cases we look at, something's gone wrong. And that tells you there's a bigger problem in the system. They aren't individual errors by particular council officers. That says there's something more fundamental going wrong in the system. Um, that, that rate varies across the country. Interestingly, in, in Yorkshire, 83% um, of the cases we look at um, in adult care, we uphold. So. We do have some serious concerns and many of the problems we see with adult care, particularly around huge amounts of confusion around charging and sometimes um, significant mistakes costing tens of thousands of pounds for people. And a lot of them have their origins in the fact that the adult care system, its funding is under absolutely extreme pressure. And that leads to a lot of distortions, both in the public sector and private sector elements of adult care that we investigate. 
And just very quickly, um, uh, do, provide, do private providers have uh, adequate complaints mechanisms in place? Well, um, many of them do. Many of them do. But it's a hugely diverse market. And 26,000 um, independent care providers in this country, some of those very, very big players with very effective complaint systems. However, some of those smaller um, independents don't necessarily have the same capacities. One of the things we proposed to the Department of Health and Social Care in the reviews they're doing at the moment of social care is that actually one of the things that could yeah. drive improvement in this sector is actually empowering the public right. to speak up more forcefully about their uh, concerns. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.